live from Columbus. It's the Zone of Truth. This week on the show, Griff and I review the Lipton Hard Ice Tea Variety Pack, take a look at the location and final foe of the Carrion Crown campaign, and of course, answer some listener questions. I'm your host, Steve, in the studio with your GM and my co-host, Griffin. Roll a wheel save. You're in the Zone of Truth. And we're live. Yeah, we're live. Hell yeah. We back for Live Zone of Truth. We did take last month off, but we're rocking and rolling. I think we're going to have the best Live Zone of Truth ever today, Griffin. What do you think? You think? Hell yeah, brother. Okay. I'll trust you. Okay. This is going to be a fun one. We've got some hard teas to try after a run of pretty good hard teas. So, you know, starting in the hole, we'll see how it goes. I'm going to be talking a little bit about Gallowspire, which is fascinating. There's some fascinating history there. And of course, we're going to talk about the big, big bad of the campaign, Adivian Adressant himself. So just going to be fun. Yeah. I see uh, in the chat, the final carrying crowns on a truth live. Yeah. What are we yeah. doing with this show after this? Do you know? Like well, we we're, we're not, uh, we're not releasing HLP episodes for a while. So, well, we can, we bestow curse is still on the table. I think we're at we're the going to have like a stack of sort of truths in the feed. Oh, me. I mean, maybe it's a good opportunity to get some new blood on the show. Like get, get some new people interviewed. I know we were trying to do that earlier in the year. That was your goal. Yeah. Yeah. And I was definitely slacking on that. It's been really difficult to get people on, not because people don't want to come on, want to dispel that rumor. People want to be on here, but yeah, it's just been really tough with scheduling around the finale. So maybe this is a, that's a good opportunity to get some people back on here. That'd be fun. Yeah. Uh, we met some really cool people at Origins. I'd love to get on here. Uh, it's there, There's a list. We're going to have some good guests soon. Hopefully. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe that's what we'll do with the show. I believe it when I see it. Yeah. But anyway, Griff, how you been, man? What you been up to? Pretty good. I've been doing pretty good. Yesterday, we went to a very strange event that I found day of which was a concert, if you can call it a concert. I, I don't really know. It's We went to see Brave the Sea, which is like a Celtic punk slash pirate band. I think they're originally from Newark, Ohio, which is like 45 minutes from here. And the concert was attached to a beer fest. Yeah. <laughs> um, which was dangerous. The hubris, the absolute hubris of you get in it's twenty dollars if you want to just get in and see the bands okay and then it's 50 if you want to do the bands plus the brew fest all right so thirty dollars for a brew fest you're thinking you know that's maybe you know that's a little chunk of change that's not nothing then you walk in the door you get 25 eight ounce pours of craft beer for thirty dollars and uh let me tell you we got our money's worth yeah that was uh Nobody finished their ticket. No. I got through 20 of 25. Yeah, I did not get to 20. I well, I think, was there two hours ahead Right, And that's, that's where I, I started behind. I showed up a couple hours late with Eric because uh, you guys got there like basically right after work or whatever. And we had some stuff. We're a little further away, of course. So Eric and I were about two hours later. And uh, you walk into a party or uh, a hangout or sesh or whatever. And you're like, wow. I'm not on the same level as these people. <laughs> I got to catch up. Yep. That's how I felt yesterday. So I don't know, man. It was fun, though. Like Brave the Sea fucking 
blew the lid off of it. Like, you know, there weren't a whole lot of people at this event. No, it was a small no. event and I don't think that the attendance was good. Like it was, well, it's, it's weird. There, it's weird. But, like it was a shamrock club of Columbus, like mm-hmm. thrown event. It was like, yeah. So like so the Irish there, like, heritage. Yeah. It was at their lodge <laughs> and like surrounding grounds. So I, it was a little ambiguous to me whether I had to be like a member to get tickets Right. Like, that's what I was kind of worried about. And when it was like an online ticket purchasing thing, I was at least like, all right, they didn't check for like a membership ID. So I have tickets. Or like, do I just need to be Irish? Like the flyer has like a pot of gold and shit on it. It's like, all right. But yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know if they'll do it again next year because I don't know that turnout was great. But boy, did I have fun last night. Yeah, it was like, like their, the first, bands it was their first annual one. They called it first annual. So. Oh. Hopefully they have more because that was a riot of an event. And yeah, we were, we were out there with Eric. We were out there with our buddy, John and Haley joined us as well. I mean, it was just a, it was a great time. Yeah. The uh, real hidden gem. Yeah. Hidden I, gem. I absolutely agree with that. Is there anything that else that you wanted to shout out before we get into these Liptons here? Oh yeah. I've been playing a new monster collecting game called Cassette Beasts. Ooh. It's pretty good. It's got like a pretty unique like fusion mechanic. I'm not super far into the game, but uh, I got it in the Steam Summer Sale and I've been playing it a little bit. So that's pretty fun. And then I got a game called Dredge. It's like a fishing game. You're like on a trawler fishing off the coast of like Massachusetts or something. And it starts as a very much like fishing for like to upgrade your boat and Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And then it becomes very Lovecraftian. Oh, it has like a Doki Doki kind of turn where it's like, oh, this game, this is not the game you started playing. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I might have to give that a shot. We got to, we got to get Chris on that too. I bet he'd love that. Yeah. He loves that Lovecraftian stuff, you know? Well, as for me, I've been watching a ton of movies. I just saw Avatar The Way of Water and I was not on board with the hype. I did not catch it in theaters. I caught it on streaming. I wish I saw it in theaters. That movie slapped. It was so good. Just a good movie in general. Special effects were awesome and it just, it's so pretty and I just want to ride all the aquatic beasts. It seems like so much fun. Really cool flick. If you were like me and were skeptical about it, well, it's like one of the highest grossing movies in history for a reason. It actually is pretty tight. But besides that, the thing that I've been getting into lately, I started a show on Hulu called The Bear, which I started because my brother texted me the other day. He's like, hey, season two of The Bear's out. And I'm like, Uh, I, I, I don't watch that show. And he's like, bro, you're from Chicago. How are you not watching the bear? And I'm like, all right, fine. I'll give it a shot. And it is about a little Italian beef stand in Chicago and the people working there. There's a, um, a very famous chef, I guess, who is working in some of the best restaurants in the world. And his brother runs this Italian beef store. His brother dies and leaves the store to him. So he comes back and has, and is like, a little bit of a fish out of water kind of situation. But let me tell you, like this show is so tonally strange and I'm only about five or six episodes into it, but like it's really depressing and then it's really funny and then it's really heartwarming and then it's really exciting. Like I feel my emotions are all over the place watching this. It's like stressful to watch because it's all like very real kitchen stuff too. Like it's the behind the scenes of a restaurant type of workplace sort of comedy 
but I'm going to keep going with it. I really like it. And it's so specifically regionally Chicago. It's ridiculous. When someone goes somewhere fancy, they go to Lake Geneva. When someone is ordering something, there's Jar Nera on it. Like it's the building they're in has a Malort billboard on top of it. And that should just tell you everything you need to know. But yeah, so that's the bear. I'm going to keep going. I'm probably going to blow through both seasons within the next couple of weeks. I'm really enjoying it. But let's get to our first segment here. The Lipton Hard Iced Tea Variety Pack. Oh, boy. Yeah. Website copy. Your cup of hard tea. Meet your new favorite hard tea, Lipton Hard Iced Tea, based in more than 130 years of tea expertise. Every 5% ABV, just sweet enough flavor, starts with real brewed Lipton tea for the smoothest and most refreshing hard tea out there. We're looking at 5% ABV, 18 grams of sugar, and 175 calories per can. Notably, ABV is about average for what we see, but sugar and calories a little higher than we're used to here. We got four flavors, lemon, strawberry, peach, and half and half. And at this time, I'll say, what are your thoughts on Lipton, man? I, I always kind of feel like Lipton was like, not great. <laughs> Just like, hey, I'm kind of craving a tea. Lipton's fine. Yeah, I mean, for like a canned tea, it was fine. Yeah. You know. Is brisk Lipton? Or is that different? Ooh, that's a good question. It's definitely like the same color, color branding yeah, it's and like stuff. it's like the same color. I like brisk. Yeah, brisk is pretty tight. But yeah, so I don't know how I'm feeling going into this because unlike Arizona, like I love an Arizona tea. And I see in the chat that Corey's saying that brisk is Lipton. Yes, so confirmed. So I loved Arizona and love the hard tea. I don't really care about Lipton, so will I really care about these? We'll see. But we're going to rate these seltzers on the tea scale. So one out of five, that's going to be a tea pose. Two out of five is a tea shirt. Three out of five is a tea mobile. Four out of five is a T-1000. And five out of five is a T-Rex. So, Griff, how do you feel about uh, cracking into one of these guys? Sure. I'll start with the first one on our list, which is lemon. We'll see flavor-wise. I'm wondering how lemon's going to be much different than half and half. <laughs> I thought the both same flavors thing. on this list. <laughs> yep. A little confused. Actually, a little confused by the cans because the <laughs> lemon is like it's a. And I'll show the people watching live. Mm-hmm. It's a blue and yellow can, mm-hmm. and the fucking half and half is like just has like a splash of light blue on it like otherwise it's just the lemon one right and so you've got lemon which the predominant color for the flavor is yellow and then the half and half is the predominant color is half yellow half light blue right but like it's supposed to be half lemonade and half tea i don't associate tea with light blue so no, I don't know. I, or, or I just wish they would have done it all light blue. You know what I mean? Yeah, just sure. so it's a different color in the pack. I think you replaced that light blue I'm like with pulling, a brown. I'm pulling them out of the pack and I'm like, wait, is this another three flavor pack? Like, what the hell's going on? And I'm like, no, I have to go back and find the half and half because that's mm-hmm. somewhere in here amongst these lemons. Mm. All right. So Griff has tried the lemon. It's coming my way. Oh, sorry. Lemon. Real Lipton tea makes tart lemon flavor for an ultra smooth take on classic iced tea is the copy for lemon. Uh, that's uh, that's nice to me. You think so? Yeah, I think that tastes just like brisk. It does, but I don't know that I really love the brisk flavor if this is what that tastes like. I mean, it does. I am getting the sense memory from it. It just kind of tastes like artificial tea. Yeah. Which I guess that's what brisk is. 
Where are you setting this one, man? But it doesn't have any booze flavor either. That's true. Yeah. It is It is not boozy. Yeah, I think this is a T-1000 for me. Ooh. I'm going to go wildly different here. I'm giving this a T-shirt. That's a two out of five. And I don't know. Maybe it's just because I don't really like it that much. Yeah. It, listeners, it doesn't deserve it, too. Mm. I'm just going to say that now. Mm. This is better than 90% of the shit we've tried on here. Mm. I can be convinced for a three <laughs> for a T-Mobile. Because I guess that is it isn't actual dog shit. I just don't really like the flavor. That's fair. So I don't think you're going to like the rest of them then. No, I probably won't. Because that's exactly what Lipton tea tastes like. Yeah. And then we're just going to get some more artificial fruit flavor in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So strawberries coming up next. Real Lipton tea, sweet strawberry flavor, super refreshing finish. All right. Yep. That's another T1000 for me. That tastes good. Ooh, I don't know, man. That's strawberry sharp. I'm going to stay where I'm at. Tastes kind of like jam. T-Mobile. The strawberry's kind of like jam in that. Yeah, I guess. It's definitely artificial. Mm-hmm. I just got a sharpness to it I don't, I don't really love. Let's see. Peach. It's doable, but I'm not a big fan. But yeah, go ahead with that peach. Yeah, peach. Pick this sweet and juicy fan fave made with real Lipton tea. All right. Uh, I think that literally tastes the same as the Arizona peach one to me. And I rated that a five, so I'll rate this a five. That's a T-Rex for me. I can't join you on this one. I'm sorry. They just have that sweet artificial flavor that I don't love. And, you know, maybe that is the promise of the premise or whatever. That's Yeah, but, it's Lipton tea, dude. <laughs> but if the, promise, if the premise is not good or something I don't like, well, it's three down the board. I think they're doing what they're intending to do. Do I like it? Not really. So to me, that's right down the middle. Yeah, I, think, I mean, I this it's, is, a, it's a success, this right? Is, this is like if you if you got the Mountain Dew pack and you hate Mountain Dew. Exactly. That's how you're rating yeah. this, basically. Yeah. They're successfully doing what they're trying to do, but I don't love it. So I struggle to go higher than a three. But, you know, respect to them. They're doing their thing. And we're going to close down here with the half and half. Real Lipton tea plus half lemonade flavor equals really refreshing. All right. That's my favorite of the bunch. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't really differ much from the lemon for me. No. It's a little less lemon. I think that's actually brisk. Like, that's that's actually the brisk flavor. And I think it's a little better than lemon, so I'll give it a T-Rex. I will join you on that T-Rex. That's a five out of five to me. It's not quite as, like, artificially sharp as the others. I think it's pretty tasty. I like it. I think it's definitely more successful than the lemon. It's, I think it's just a better iteration of it. Yeah, it's, it's like it's more tea forward, which yeah. I think is probably good for it. The other ones are definitely like if you've had like a, a raspberry brisk or like any of the flavors of brisk, it's just like that artificial flavor, but it is artificial flavor. It's like when you do like a cherry Coke, it's like mm-hmm. artificial cherry flavor shot right into it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I mean, this is literally like if you're getting an iced tea at one of those multi pour stations where mm-hmm. you can like pick the flavor yeah it's like it's injecting that like fake flavor into this three oh, different like times. a um one of those coke machines those yeah, fancy yeah like ones. The coke machine that lets you pick a flavor yeah i think that's pretty fair so i gave this a, a pretty middle of the road griff you're a little bit more favorable on there floating around the fours and fives but overall fairly successful pack 
You know, yeah, not bad. you know, again, you see the dichotomy of our ratings. I think if you like Lipton and you like the brisk flavors and stuff, realizing that it is an artificial flavor, you'll like these because mm-hmm. it tastes just like the iterations of brisk. But I would definitely say like the Arizona is a much cleaner, like it's actually that natural flavor. It feels like for the Arizona ones, the Arizona's tastes like flavored tea. These taste like tea flavored with chemicals. Yeah. Well, I'd say that the Arizonas are more tea forward. It's like green yeah. tea is just yeah. a tea flavor. Like the lemon tea is probably about as tea as this half and half. And the peach is a little less like punch in your face peach. Yeah. Fuck, man. That Arizona green tea was so good. Yeah. Kind of want one of those now. But yeah, so, you know, I'm giving it about a four and a half. I think you're giving it about a three and a half. Yeah. So, you know what? Not too bad. Good job, Lipton. Let's go to our final verdict here. Does Mr. T pity the fool that purchases this pack? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, No, me either. I think, I mean, we've certainly had far worse things on here. This, even if you don't like the artificial flavor, it's like, well, 70% of seltzers we've had on here have an artificial flavor. (laughs) So, like, for these to be pretty good, despite the artificial flavor, I'd say is a win. And if you like the classic brisk flavors you're gonna like these Mm -hmm. all right man well sounds good to me let's move into the meat of this episode we gotta break these up first oh fuck you're right probably want the half yeah i'd love the half and half do you care among the i like all of them so i don't really care i guess if i'm taking half and half i don't want lemon probably not yeah all right i'll go peach if that's cool yeah that's fine all right so now we're going to move into the meat of this episode. This is what we're calling the finale special here. So you all voted and you wanted a new mystery or random segment. And given the timing of this episode's recording concurrent with the release of the final fight, we're going to be talking about that final fight a little bit in a way. So what we're doing is I'm going to go ahead and give a little peek behind the scenes on Gallo Spire itself, where the final fight takes place, because Gallo Spire has some really, really interesting history and lore. And then I'm going to turn it over to Griff, because the Odivian that you saw us fight in the finale is very different from the one that's printed in the book. So we're going to talk a little bit about what those differences are and what this new, improved, bad and rad Odivian was able to do. So let's go ahead and get started here. I'm going to talk about Galaspire for a little bit. First, I'm going to just give you a little bit of flavor text directly from PathfinderWiki.com. The tower is constructed of dark basalt and iron, towering over 400 feet above the earth. Its outer walls are festooned with spikes and hanging chains, giving the tower an appropriately grim appearance. Tarbathon is sealed in an underground chamber beneath the Gothic Tower using a powerful ward known as the Great Seal that no mortal magic can penetrate. The above ground chambers of the Citadel are still accessible, although they are incredibly dangerous due to the presence of lingering magic and undead. Originally, heroic knights and summoned angels once stood guard within the tower, intent on watching over the tomb and preventing outsiders from interfering. But over time, the intrusion of foul cultists and the unholy presence of the Whispering Tyrant, even in dormancy, destroyed them. So let's talk about the history of this place it's very cool and i'm going to point you in a couple directions today if you want to learn a little bit more because there's some really really cool printed material about galospire so galospire once upon a time did not exist instead there was a bustling mining town called adarak which was the county seat of virlicht in ustalav i think there's slightly less than a dozen counties 
Griff check me on that? Yeah. I think that sounds about right. It's not quite that high, but it's like probably eight or nine or something. And their primary exports were nickel, ore, and gems. It was invaded by the Whispering Tyrant's forces of orcs and undead and fell pretty quickly, I believe. The survivors of that invasion, though, were put to work in the mines. And instead of mining those nickel, ore, and gem resources, they were instructed to dig deeper. And they produced these really like cool, dark metals and radioactive materials that they brought to the surface, which were immediately used to construct the tower above them. So these people got invaded, got beat, and then were forced to mine the materials that would eventually become Gallowspire. Once the mines were tapped out though, and the tower complete, all the living beings were sealed inside the mines and the city above was left abandoned to rot essentially. Much of the remaining town has since been destroyed. Either, you know, it, it was mostly destroyed in the Whispering Tyrant's original invasion or the subsequent crusades of people facing off against the Whispering Tyrant, which we're going to talk about pretty soon. So, the Whispering Tyrant then made Gallowspire's seat of power and often would order defeated enemies to be impaled on giant hooks that hung from Gallowspire's walls, securing its grisly name. Now, when I read that the other day, I thought that was really interesting because maybe that was something that I didn't quite pick up on, that the name is actually quite literal. Mm-hmm. Gallo as in like a hanging spire, it's a tower. They impale people on these hooks and they hang off the side. Did not realize that. But yes, so the Whispering Tyrant ruled there for quite a while until an alliance of Taildor, the Knights of Ozum, and Dwarves of Kraganan rose to confront him, eventually beating his armies back to the city of Adarak, where the Whispering Tyrant was confronted by General Arnasant in the year 3827 AR. For those of you a little unfamiliar with the timeline, that's about 800 years before the Carrion Crown campaign. During this battle, the Whispering Tyrant used a wish to attempt to pull the general's still beating heart from his chest into his waiting claws, which is, I think, like kind of a, a fun mirror with the heart rip that we saw leading up to the finale with Tulia. But the shield of Aridin, which was an item that he had, intervened, saving Arnasant. Yet, so great was the Whispering Tyrant's power that when the magic destroyed the shield, it shattered it into many pieces. One shard pierced his hand, destroying his body with holy fire. After his body was destroyed, his spirit retreated down into Gallows Spire below the tower towards where his phylactery was, and the armies that beat him at the dying general's command, this Arnasant dude was dying at the time, sealed him in there with something called the Great Seal. They eventually disbanded, but the Knights of Ozum stuck around, establishing the city of Vigil nearby and the country of Lastwall. So that's kind of your origin story for, for Lastwall as well. A little bonus for you guys. Now, this is where things get a little interesting. I know this gets into spoiler territory with Tyrant's Grasp. That's not where I'm going with this. So, guys, so don't worry. But what I was a little surprised to find out was that the Whispering Tyrant is basically like alive and well under Gallowspire. He's sealed in there. But he's not like entombed. He's on like house arrest, essentially. Yeah. Like he's still moving around and talking to people and stuff. I thought that was really interesting. A lot of the information that I got above 
and I'm going to talk about in a moment comes from a big blowout of Gallowspire in a source book called Dungeons of Galarian, where they go into the history, they describe it, they add a whole bunch of cool stuff that you could find under Gallowspire. And this is where you can learn a lot more about the Whispering Tyrant's lair under the tower itself, which according to the book has never been breached. There are 12 levels of the dungeon detailed in that book, including such things as the Great Seal itself, breaches from the negative energy plane, a towering obelisk with thousands of the Whispering Tyrant spells written on it, and his tomb itself, which is where he holds court with all of the people that are trapped down there with him. Really fascinating place. I really highly encourage people, if you like our show and like the flavor of gothic horror and uh, notably like book six in the finale, give that a read. It was written before Tyrant's Grasp, so it shouldn't ruin anything for you if you're interested in playing that campaign or playing in that campaign. But it was fascinating. I really enjoyed it. And for those of you who haven't heard, there's going to be a video game that takes place here called Pathfinder Gallowspire Survivors. It is, I'm going to read a, a copy here, a new roguelite survivor game set in the beloved fantasy world of Pathfinder. Enter Gallowspire, Pathfinder's legendary tower of darkness alongside your fearless companion. Slay hordes of enemies, upgrade your arsenal, and overcome deadly bosses to steal away the ancient king of undeath. Man, I am such a Hades fan, and when I saw videos from this, it looks like Hades. And I'm like, fuck, I'm going to play this game so much, I can't wait. I want it to be on Xbox, but I kind of doubt it will be, so I'm going to play on PC. Is it being kickstarted, or is it, do you know? Oof, I don't know. The other one got kickstarted. I think it's like, I think you could pre-order it on Steam, so that to me kind of implies it's not, but honestly don't know. Interesting. But yeah. I thought Galospire was super cool to play in. I thought it was really cool to read about and um, check it out, folks. Galospire's tight. But that's really all that I wanted to talk about today because I do think once you start diving into it a little bit more, you do risk Tyrant's Grasp and carrying crown spoilers, honestly, but I guess that doesn't really matter to the people listening. Yeah. So Don't spoil yourself. Yeah. Yeah, if you're listening to this but haven't listened to book six. Tune out then, now. Yeah. Tune out now. Now's the time you're going to want to tune out. So... Let's switch gears because we got to talk about the big bad of this campaign, Adivian himself. The first thing that I want to ask Griff, maybe we don't need to go through his entire original stat block, but kind of like run me through what we should have been facing if we played this by the book. He's a level 17 staff magus forsaken lich. Now, how do you think that runs if you played it? Like, as it's written, do you think that's a challenge for no. the level 14 party? No. And speci- why do you think that? Because uh, he's terrible. <laughs> like, he's just not built well. Not optimized as a Magus. I mean, not even, like, competent as a Magus. And then, like, the most dangerous things about him in his original stat block are, like, that swift action like arcane energy thing that he was doing. Sure. Like, that's the most dangerous thing about him. You don't want him going up in combat against your NPC or your PCs because he's frail. I mean, they, he's all alone, and they basically say like, "Oh, you know, if Fidivian's struggling, like throw these things in from the storm and whatever." It's like, Paizo, just build those into the encounter. <laughs> like build them into the encounter. I think you guys could have swept him in two rounds. And you think that with like a four-person party? Yeah. 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 Jeez. That would be a little underwhelming. Yeah, I mean, again, like some notoriously bad uh, 
BBEG writing. The way he's developed the entire story has Wizard written all over it. Yeah, I did think Magus was an interesting choice. I think it's just because, like... Do you think it's because, like, maybe it, might have it been came around, out around yeah, that time? Yeah, I think it was, like, around that time where they... Just like they did with, like, Quest for the Frozen Flame or whatever. It's like, oh, we released Magus, so let's do a Magus BBEG. And it's like, well, Magus isn't really good by themselves. Yeah, you're definitely, like, part of a team. Essentially, like a like a melee DPS class. Am I wrong about that? Right, kinda? I mean, it's like, it's like... Like most of the people in here listen to like Giant Slayer. It's like having a melee class as your mm-hmm. big bad for a level 17 campaign or whatever. It falls very flat in first edition against your party, which probably has at least one or two full casters. Yeah, it looks like we got confirmation in the chat there, too, from Corey that this campaign dropped at about the exact same time that Ultimate Magic did, which is where the, the yeah. Magus comes mm-hmm. from. So that definitely explains that. Anything else that you wanted to call on from the original before we uh, we change gears to what we actually saw? Not really. I mean, like, a level 17 Magus has, like, you know, I think he's got his six level spells. It's, like, nothing scary. Mm-hmm. Like, his DC, his spell DCs were crap. Like, against you guys, like, Matumbe would have needed to roll, like, a two on most of his saves. Oh. I could probably swing a two. Yeah. Not Emily here, you know what I'm saying? Right, right. Like Lyra Sorry, Emily, I see, I see you listening in. Lyra could have had issues. Yeah. All right, so what did we see instead? Well, obviously, we added Mythic to the adventure. Mm-hmm. So Adivian was a level 20 exploiter wizard, Forsaken Lich, with five Mythic levels in Archmage. Ooh. So... His uh, ability scores ended up being uh, 13 strength, 22 dex. He didn't need con, 42 intelligence, 18 wisdom, and 28 charisma. 42 int. Well, Damn. yeah, he's got his he's got his plus six thingamajig on. He's yeah. He you know for both of the mythic ability boosts, he took intelligence. So that's another four. Mm-hmm. So that's a 10 point swing. So he's at 32 originally. All of his, you know, level up boosts went into intelligence, and he was a really smart dude. Aside from that, <laughs> hell yeah! So, uh, right, so yeah, let's get into it, man. Oh boy, yeah. Uh, so he was very fun. Just kind of looking at some of his stuff, which I'll get into, like what's building these things. But he had 335 hit points as a wizard. His AC was 37. Notably, his touch AC was also 37. He had a plus 25 initiative and like mythic initiative. I let him keep mythic initiative, which was awesome. Uh, His saves were fortitude plus 28, reflex plus 28, will plus 29. Be pretty tough to get him to fail a save. Basically looking for ones. Pretty much. And then on top of that, he had that spell resistance 25. That is the like spell turning thing. So I'll talk a little bit about what a forsaken lich is because this stuff like applied to original Adivian. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with a level 14 party was actually, you know, the especially the Spellstorm thing that they have was a little scary. So Spellstorm is a Forsaken Lich is the epicenter of a squall of unchecked magical energies. If a spell targets a Forsaken Lich and fails to overcome its spell resistance, this uncontrolled magic redirects the spell as per spell turning. The Forsaken Lich is always considered to have 10 spell levels of turning left for the purposes of this effect, even if affected by multiple spells in the same round. 
So that applies to every spell you cast against him. So a level 14 party against Spar Resistance 25, your spells have a high likelihood of turning back and hurting you. Now, everybody took like spell penetration for their 15th level and that kind of shit and mythic spell penetration or whatever. So it wasn't as big of a deal. He's got blind sense. He's got a delusory aura. So he basically gives everyone a minus four penalty on saves against fear effects, which didn't really come up. He's got disembodied strikes, so instead of a regular lich that can like hit you and paralyze you, his strike is disembodied. It's a special touch attack that can be made as a standard action, which why would you do that with a wizard? I certainly didn't, but it deals 1d8 points of damage to living creatures plus one point of damage for every two hit die, and then can apply like his paralysis thing. The big thing was Soul Lash, so that was, you know, that was at a DC 29 for a Divian at this level, etc. Mm-hmm. And it's where he unleashes dark energy in a blast of pure magical destructiveness, which takes the form of a 240-foot line that deals an amount of damage equal to 1d6 per two hit dice of the Forsaken Lich and paralyzes those affected for a d10 rounds. So when you saved on the reflex save, you took half damage and avoided the paralysis. And then this is where I kind of changed this. So mainly because in two rounds, you guys had done like 40 damage to him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think this played well with the concept of a Divian as well. But normally this would do a D6 times a quarter of his total hit dice. So it would have done five times a d6 of damage to him if he didn't use a swift action to unleash it. I had to do the full hit dice, so it's a d6 times 20. Let's see. So that's kind of the Forsaken Lich stuff on top of just being a Lich mm-hmm. and getting the undead stuff and all that, all that chatter. As a wizard, he had Dimensional Slide, which he didn't really use because he had the mythic version of kind of what that is. He had Counterspell, He had Potent Magic, which I think everyone takes as an exploit. And he had Quick Study, which again, doesn't really come up in combat. For his Arcane Discoveries though, he had Fast Study, he had Idealize. So when he used Transmutation Spells, the enhancement bonus that he grants increases by four at 20th level. So when he gave his buddies like a strength enhancement, it was a plus eight Mm. instead of a normal plus four for a bull strength. So that was awesome. Helpful on the buddies who already are like big beefy hitters. Plus strength. Right. To bring that demon in, I actually took a discovery instead of summoning him. So I took true name greater, which the true name I got was for a Vivakia demon, which is what that was. So that's how he brought him in. And then he had Time Stutter, which I think is the thing that came up a little bit and confused some people. So he can briefly step out of time. Uh, He can do it three times per day, once at 10th level, twice at 15th level, three times at 20th level. But you only gain one round of time in this time stop spell. So that's what he he could kind of like, instead of burning another time stop, he could time stop for a round. Mm -hmm. He, let's see... As far as feats, he had dimensional agility to go with dimensional slide and his little reaction thing on the mythic. He had combat casting, 
Cherry Blossom spell, which I didn't get to use. What does that um, do? Cherry Blossom spell is a spell that gives you two points of damage in strength, dex, and con, or two points of damage in intelligence, wisdom, and charisma if I hit you with a spell. Oh, it's like metamagic? Yeah. Dope. He had greater spell focus in evocation and spell focus in necromancy, spell penetration, uncanny concentration. He had mythic spell focus in both evocation and necromancy. Uh, he had quickened spell, intensified spell, improved initiative, and then all the things from World is Square and all the things that he would normally get, such as like scribe scroll and that kind of stuff that wizards get. For Mythic, he had Surge, and he had, uh, I think, 13 points of Surge, 12 or 13, or points of Mythic Power, rather. He took uh, Intelligence for both of his tier increases at Tier 2 and 4, and then the Path abilities he took, he had, so Competent Caster makes my Concentration checks for Arcane Spells auto-succeed. Hmm. Uh, so I didn't want you guys fucking with his concentration. Yeah. As long as he wasn't casting a ninth level spell, he couldn't fail a concentration check. So you could have grabbed him. You could have done whatever. It wouldn't have mattered. He had mirror dodge. So this one was kind of cool, but led to his downfall, I think. So when hit by an attack, you spend one point of power to teleport 30 feet, leaving behind an illusory duplicate. You take no damage from the attack, which instead destroys your duplicate, similar to mirror image. However, this was this is immediate action, so it messes with his like swift action economy. I pretty much used it when I knew I was gonna get like full rounded by either Duran or Saw, just because like it was worth the risk to me. You could have yeah. rolled one on that D6 and taken 20 damage, or I could have taken like 160 damage from a Saw full round attack. So I built that into this thing just so I had that in my back pocket. A lot of what I really like about the build of this is that these are things meant to counter our party, but in a way that we really haven't seen before. Like these are interesting ways to counter our like tried and true strategies, but like I don't have to fuck with like 10 mirror images mm -hmm. and displacement and him being incorporeal. We've seen that stuff enough times that like him having new tricks even though they were tricks that were foiling some of our best moves, I was like, ah, oh, that's, that's kind of cool though. Like I, I kind of like it. Right. And it's kind of like, you need to have some of that stuff when your party starts pulling out like true seeing and that kind of stuff yeah. like, through true seeing on your frontliners. So there's not a way I'm going to cheese you with these like level three, four wizard spells. Exactly. Yeah. Anymore. So he had mythic spell casting, which allowed him mythic spells. He had coupled arcana, which let him use a mythic ability with an action, depending on, so like, this allowed me to use a mythic ability that costs a swift action, as well as do the line attack, which only came up like once or twice, but was useful because I knew I had that swift action tax every turn. Yeah. He had necromantic mastery, which is uh, spend a point of mythic power to increase the caster level of a necromancy spell by my tier. So I could increase my already like DC 36 saves to like a DC 41. Again, that costs, or no, this this one's a free action. So I ended up not really using a ton of necromancy spells, which surprised me. It was more important for me in the moment, I think, to like mass target you guys rather than like save or die somebody. I think that's fair. And yeah. then when I did end up save or dying somebody, it was more like a, they're up in my face and I want to get rid of, I can get rid of more than one potentially. It's the oh shit button. Yeah. 
As far as his mythic feats, he had a mythic improved initiative, which let him spend a point of power to treat his role as a natural 20, which I did immediately. So I had a 45 initiative, which I knew none of you could beat. <laughs> uh, which let me do my time stop thing, which is yeah. immediately what I knew I was going to do. And then he took spell focus, mythic, evocation, and necromancy, which lets you... Um, so it increases the bonus to the save DCs provided by spell focus and greater spell focus. And you can expend one point of mythic power as part of casting a spell from your chosen school to force any of the spell's targets to roll their saving throws twice, taking the lower result. So that's a cool one as well. In terms of his mythic spells, you guys saw disintegrate in action. He actually had chain lightning, which he also cast as mythic. What he didn't get to use was uh, Mythic Mislead, which I was going to use at some point. Mislead is kind of that spell. I think you've used it as a witch before, where you like you disappear and leave like an illusion of yourself yes. there. And so oh, it's it, been a while. Like, and so the Mythic one like leaves four of you, and they can all like act separately. Oh, that's and, really cool. Uh, and if you spend Mythic Power, it treats your invisibility as mythic invisibility, which, you know, bypasses a lot of regular mm. means of seeing invisibility. Man, I miss playing a 1E witch. They're yeah. so fucking yeah. good. I also took Mythic Baleful Polymorph, which I didn't get to cast, unfortunately. I thought that would be cool. So that one, um, the Mythic version changes to uh, Fortitude Partial, Will Partial. If they fail the Fortitude, they automatically fail the Will Save. So instead of like getting a Fortitude Save and then getting a Will Save... Mm -hmm. or if you fail the fortitude part you don't get the will save essentially so you're just a chicken so you prepared that you were ready to rock and roll with the mythic baleful polymorph did you have any like fun flavor to turn somebody into something like or were you just going with like the classic chicken or something or rats or i was thinking more along the lines of like if somebody's flying, I'm going to turn them into like something that doesn't fly. Oh, sure. Yeah. I was, thinking about, strategically. I was thinking about turning, mostly turning you guys into like aquatic creatures. So you die. It would be ironic if you got Lyra with that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I thought like Lyra would probably be the most likely that I'd get with that. So I'd turn her into like, you know, a flounder and she'd die. A flounder. Just like little mermaid. Yep. Just like little mermaid. Let's see. And then just from mythic, he got bonus hit points based on his tier. He got hard to kill, which you guys all had. I let him keep amazing initiatives. So that's how sometimes I was acting a lot mm -hmm. was like during the time stop, I was giving myself another standard action. Yes. Now you can't use that to cast a spell, but I had a lot of spell activation items, which you can use in that piece. So like, I think one of the things that you ended up dispelling the like life anti-life bubble, anti bubble around him, but that was actually an item that I oh. used to. So I used my, uh, or I used like a point of mythic power to have another standard action during the initial, the initial time bubble or the initial time stop to give myself a couple extra things. So that was cool. Again, it's tough when you can't use it for a spell though, as like a wizard. <laughs> Uh, let's see what else. And then he had mythic saving throws. So um, this didn't apply to any of you, but if you had brought a summon in, it's basically like stalwart or whatever against non-mythic foes. Sure. So sure. all that was very fun. <laughs> he had DR 15 bludgeoning and then he had stone skin on. So DR 10 had a mantine as well. I mean, he had all the all the regular negative or all the regular undead immunities. He could never be surprised or flat-footed. 
Yeah, I'm looking at the special abilities tab that it's you're really scrolling long, through. It's long yeah. as hell. It's really long. So, um, you guys saw a lot of his spells. I'm not going to go through his like entire spell list because he's got so many freaking spells. He also had the ability to cast anything without a spell book, which is like a another mythic thing you could take. What I will do is I kind of wanted to talk about his items. Yeah. So as written, a wizard with mythic rank five is like a CR 22 or 23. Because usually mythic ranks are like two mythic ranks equals a CR. Okay. And if he's like full wealth by level, then he's normally CR 20 at full wealth by level. And then plus, you know, basically two and a half. So CR 22, CR 23. However, I way over wealth by leveled him to the tune of several artifacts. So he had like the big, the big six maxed out. So his amulet of natural armor plus five. He only really needed decks, so he had the Belt of Incredible Dex plus six, Bracers of Armor plus eight, Cloak of Resistance plus five. He had Eyes of the Dragon, which gave him basically draconic senses, so he could see in the dark 120 feet. He had a headband of mental superiority plus six, so all three mental stats plus six. He had a Vivacious Rose Prism Ion Stone, which is an artifact. And it grants a plus two insight bonus to AC. He had an orange prism iron stone, which gives him a plus one to caster level. And then I had the old, the old faithful uh, cracked dusty rose prism. I plus saw one that. I was going to call that out if you didn't. You already knew you were lapping us on initiative. I don't know why you felt it necessary just, to throw that kept on it the in sheet. There. In case I was running out of spells, I had the Staff of the Magi, uh, but this one was the Magi Staff of the Necromancer. So it changes the spells in there, but that is also, I believe, an artifact. He had Ring of Protection plus five. He had a Robe of the Rifts. First, all your attack and damage rolls with melee weapons are modified by intelligence instead of strength. You apply your armor and natural armor bonus to your touch ACs, so that's why his touch was so high. You get a plus six profane bonus to all saving throws, and your natural attacks act as if you're wearing an unholy amulet of mighty fists. Mm. Very strong artifact. He had a rod of negation, which I didn't get to use, but I was going to use on your little skull <laughs> uh, so that you guys all lost your um, death ward. Death ward. He had a luck stone, and then this item was really interesting. He had the tyrant's ring, which is the whispering tyrant's ring, which is also an artifact. So it basically, it starts as a ring of freedom of movement, and then it's also a ring of greater spell storing, and it's a ring of spell storing essentially containing anti-life shell and spell immunity. So that's how he could spell activate that anti-life shell immediately nice. uh, in, that in that time bubble. So so yeah, my, my plan was I'm not going to change it from the book as written in terms of like him just being the one at the top of the tower and no one else is with him. Mm -hmm. But I knew that going first in initiative and getting the time stop off essentially was giving me a way to bring in my meat shields, cast Deathless on the living one, give them that greater bull strength bullshit plus eight bonus, this was and then unleash them. Because the last zone of truth that we had, we were talking about Mythic, and one of the things that we talked about at length was how do you counter a party as large and as mythically powerful as us with fights like this that have a fixed amount of opponents or a very low amount of opponents and basically what you did was in this fight give a textbook rundown of how you counter that stop time so you can do more things 
bring in more friends, have artifacts that are really powerful, be ready to counter people's stuff, but then respond in an interesting way. Like, even though it was quote unquote, just a Divian on that tower, this really did feel like a big ass battle. Yeah. Like, it was cool. It worked really well, I think. Yeah. So I, mean, I was could, happy with it. You could definitely see the counters there. It's like, okay, the anti-life shell is countering my martial characters. Mm-hmm. That robe bringing my touch AC up to 37 and consistently saying like four range increments away from Durin mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, pretty much countering your ability to chuck four bombs at me and always hit, which yep. was the downfall of a lot of encounters. You know, his his spell resistance and spell turning thing was the counter for a lot of the, um, the, casters. the casters. And so you guys ended up like focusing down the ads which I knew you would do, which is why I did the deathless thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and, and for the record on that, I didn't think we did enough damage on the one guy, and Emily's like, I bet he has deathless. And I'm like, I don't think so. We didn't kill him enough. And that's totally exactly what it yeah. was. Emily was so right. Yeah, you pretty much need like the deathless ferocity combo, but mm-hmm. once you get that, <laughs> they're up. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I've seen you close your iPad. I think that probably closes the book on Adivian. Yeah, I mean, feel free to DM me about other stuff. I think there was a question around the disintegrate thing. Mm -hmm. So basically, that was a mythic disintegrate he used on his turn. Then because the time stutter is not casting a spell, it's a supernatural ability. He did his mythic thing to give him a standard action, which allowed him to do that and get a full round in the time stop and cast the wish. And then using the wish, you know, one of the uses of wish is to basically go back in time anytime in the previous round and like re-roll a roll that happened or a roll that happened in response to events. So I was like, okay, we're re-rolling the disintegrate rolls. What I should have done in retrospect is use the free action to make you guys roll twice, mm-hmm. which would have negated your rolling twice. And essentially, that's what I did when I made them re-roll was like, okay, you can't use your extra re-rolls. That's me basically counteracting their fortune effect. So yeah, that was kind of the chain of events there. And then I like confused myself and I was like, did I use disintegrate in the time stop? Because I couldn't do that. And then I, so then I like explained that and I was like, no, I used wish. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. Yeah. Don't at me. It was a long combat. It was a stressful combat. But overall, I'm very, very pleased with not just how it ended, but how we got to where it ended. It w- was not a pushover. I never felt like we were being cheated. I felt like it was a very fitting final encounter for this campaign. And on that note, I think it's time for questions. The first one that I see right now is from Demuth. This is a question specifically for Griff. Did you at some point feel there was a realistic chance to TPK the party in the last fight? Yeah, that's why I immediately changed the thing from a quarter hit points times a D6 to full hit points times a D6. The first time he takes 100 points of damage should have been 30. Mm. I could have. I'll, I'll be 100% honest with you. I could have call it soft or whatever i wanted it to be a fun and long fight and i feel like i could have thrown things at them that would have been like i mean shit i could have sat there time stopped three more times and summoned mm-hmm. i had like most of my ninth level slots <laughs> baked with the times with a time stop and with that time stutter it's like a free summon every round mm-hmm. so i could have just fucking summon monster nine you guys to death right and i think that is part of like the inherent conversation about 
like homebrewing stuff in general. Yes, you can do anything, literally anything you want in this system to fuck over the party. But there's a restraint that you need to have built into your GM of like, what makes sense? And also what is going to be fun and fair? I mean, you made this guy from scratch. You could have easily added five more mythic tiers. Yeah. But you didn't. Well, well <laughs> I, I, I think <laughs> what he means is like in the fight as built. Yeah. And yeah, like a wizard can do <laughs> a wizard can do a fuck ton more than what I like showcased in that mm. fight. But I mean, I, I was even nice with like the mage's disjunction just because I didn't want to deal with everyone rolling for all their 30 magic items. Mm-hmm. Because that's just such a clusterfuck for like the middle of a combat. So let's continue this line of questioning because Corey adds on to that. Were you surprised that you only got one of them? Did you think there was going to be a higher body count? Yeah, I think you guys all like pulled out all the stops on that last mythic chain lightning. And I think that would have killed five of you if you didn't all succeed. <laughs> it would have at least knocked five of you down because it was like almost 100 points of damage and you guys weren't feeling good. I think... I can't speak for everybody. Saw could have taken it. Matumbe hadn't really been touched, so he definitely could have taken it. Especially because I was doing those like stalwart and like evasion saves on everything. I think my hit points were basically full, if I remember correctly. Durin probably would have gone down, but I know across the party, there were some other people that were really hurting. Yeah, you would have taken a lot of people out. All right, let's try and burn through as many of these as we can because I see them coming in and people are really antsy to talk about the finale. I get it. So this one comes from Demuth. This is for me. How do you feel now that you will no longer play Matumbe, Saw, and Durin? As a follow-up question, will your builds for the next AP actually make sense? All right, very funny. Now, this is a really good question. I did have, like, a little existential moment coming out of this finale. Like, I've spent basically the last five years of my, like, Steve persona in this group and in this community as, like, my main character is Matumbe. And, like, because to me, everything is, like, built off of our flagship show, right? Because our flagship show was successful, we were able to do Bestow Curse. Because it was successful, we were able to do Linked Legacy and Speak with Plants. So I always think of me primarily as like a carrying crown player. And now that I'm not able to play those characters anymore, that kind of changes things. Like realistically right now, I'm a Vec guy. Like he's my main right now because the mainline show is over. And of course, I'm a Rocks Naughty guy. It's it's crazy to go from Matumbe, Sawyer, Durin, Rocks, uh, and Vec to just the last two. So it is a little bit of a perspective shift, and it's sad in a way. In that, like, I would love to play all of these guys again, given the opportunity. But then we start to cross over into the the territory of the epilogues, which I'm not going to talk about today because, as of recording this episode, they haven't dropped. But Eventually, you have to say goodbye to your characters, whether they die or they get written out or the campaign ends. And I had to say goodbye to them in that way. And it's difficult, but very satisfying. I think people are going to listen to our epilogue episode and really, really like it. And that's basically all I want to say. I kind of want to revisit this question after we're done with the epilogue episode. I want to revisit this in the future. We can revisit it on the 15th. Maybe we should, yes, because then I think I'll be able to contextualize some of this answer a little bit more, but it is a little tough to say goodbye. And as a follow-up question, will your builds for the next AP actually make sense? I would argue that the Durin build makes sense. The Sawyer post-transformation build makes sense. The Matumbe and original Saw build do not. 
I think the build that I'm coming in with for Skull and Shackles is going to be fucking fire. I think it's going to be really good. But I'm not going to talk about that here. We'll talk about that in a later Zone of Truth. And now I'm going to scroll down for another question. Eric's asking, did anything in the player's guide not pay off slash come into play? Man, I don't remember what's in the player's guide. I read that five years ago. You're fighting undead. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I think that paid off pretty fucking well. Follow up. What are two things you'd recommend slash warn against for people jumping into Karen Crown? I think we can definitely answer that question. And my first thing is don't read the player's guide and think you're doing six books of fighting undead. I think that is going to be a mistake because you are going to spend a shit ton of time fighting underwater creatures and lycanthropes and I mean it's half of the adventure it is it's a big chunk but don't go into this thinking that's the only thing you're going to be doing yeah right yeah introduce the bad guy way earlier Mm -hmm. than book six where they introduce him so is he not in book two is he not? No, dude. Who do you argue against? Just You're some just fucking, some fucking asshole prosecutor. That's insane. Yeah, it paid off much more this way, didn't it? It did. <laughs> That's why I'm confused. <laughs> I'm getting in all caps in the chat from Newt saying, That's dumb. I mean, seriously, if you want to know what I changed, like, they're not a terrible read. Read the Carrying Crown books. You'll be like, Okay, like, this whole arc in book one doesn't exist. You know, this guy's never here. This guy's never there. This shit never happens. I mean, think about like even the freaking funeral. Like, none of those people are there. Mm-hmm. None of those people show up. There's a lot that had to be changed for me to make it like the story I wanted to tell with the characters that we had. So a lot was changed. Yeah. Which, like, I mean, GMs have the creative liberty to do. And, like, I've always said, like, if you listen to our carrying crown, that's our carrying crown. Mm-hmm. It's not the way any of that shit plays out in the books, which is fine. Yeah. I think there are some things when you look at our campaign and you're like, oh, yeah, that's homebrew. Obviously, you have like going to Abaddon for a hot second, mm-hmm. going down to the shackles for a while. Yeah, that has nothing to do on the tin with carrying crown itself, but like, I still think works with our story. But then there are other things too, like, Shit, we've recorded 257 episodes of this show, and I'm just finding out now that, like, Audivian isn't in book two. Like, that's crazy. There's a lot of just narrative stitching that I think that you've done that really smooths out some of the rough edges. Yeah. It's not necessary for the campaign to be good by any means. It's mm-hmm. just... It, it's just going to make it, it better. It, it does feel a bit disjointed if you don't do any of that stuff. So I guess... That's my big shout out for, you know, if you're going to start carrying crown as a GM, at least. Yeah. All right. We have a couple more questions in the chat and keep them coming, folks. I want to burn through as many of these as we can just to be talking about the finale because it's timely. And like we said at the top of this episode, we're probably going to start changing what we talk about on Zone of Truth because we don't have a gothic horror campaign to talk about anymore. So Demuth asks, will next week's stream be available as a podcast episode? We haven't really discussed that yet. I kind of doubt it although we could just hit record and then we don't have to do another zone of truth next so yeah that's an idea we could do that all right we could release it as zone of truth we could release it on youtube too i don't yeah. really we'll figure something out i don't give a shit i'll, I'll put it somewhere for posterity probably mm-hmm. we have a question for griff from eric thoughts on the one piece live action news and casting what do you think man i think the cast is pretty solid i mean oda backed like the entire casting of the show and it was all run by Oda is the is the creator of one piece 
So it clearly is following, at least in part, to his vision, which I think is probably closer than any of the other anime adaptation creators have been to the live action. Like, he's very close to the development of it. So from that perspective, I'm I'm hype. I think, you know, the CGI looks kind of goofy, like when Luffy does his, like, gum gum pistol in the the trailer and it's like cool a guy stretches his arm 40 feet out like yeah you're never gonna make that look like realistic in a live action Mm -hmm. so i think you got to suspend a little bit of like disbelief like the biggest gripe a lot of people had with this going to live action is that like one piece over almost any anime is like a cartoon first like the the what yeah, happens the in the has world, like long ass nose. Like what happens like, in the world yeah. is very cartoonish, and it works very well for animation, and it doesn't work very well for live action. Mm-hmm. And so adapting it is really difficult. I mean, you see it like Buggy the Clown is a very popular character from early on in One Piece, and is going to feature in as far as the live action goes. He's going to be in it, and he looks terrifying in, in live action. <laughs> like they made his nose like real, like realistic, and mm-hmm. and so it's like supposed to be a clown nose, but they like gave it pores and stuff. It looks like a nasty giant strawberry. Don't like it's awful. that. So there's some stuff that I don't think will translate well, but I have faith that. That because Oda is so involved, it's it's gonna be one of the. I'm I'm really hoping, and I think it will be one of the better live action anime adaptions. I mean, if you think about it, compared to any other manga anime series, it is literally the most sold book ever. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's like the most profitable anime series ever. So it's one of the longer running series ever. So in terms of animes, it's like up there with like Pokemon. Yeah. So you kind of have to do this one good if you're going to make a case for these live action animes going forward. I think this one, I'm cautiously optimistic for it. Now, I have not watched the teaser. I don't know shit about One Piece. I know I would like it. We've talked about this before. It's like fucking pirate anime. Like, come on. What's there not to like about this? But the problem for me is there's just so much of it. And you, you and Haley Griff, you put in the time to catching up. I just don't feel like I have the time or the drive to really catch up, even though it's something that I know I would like because I would have to sacrifice a bunch of other stuff that I know I do. So instead of like getting into the manga, which I know would be basically insurmountable, starting the show, which I know would be basically insurmountable, I'm hoping that the live action is decent so I can jump in and be like, oh, this is what I was missing. This is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm hoping is that like the difficulty with One Piece and getting people into One Piece, besides the fact that it is so long, is that it has been running for so long that the animation style is... A lot of people really dislike the animation style in the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's 25 years old. Right. And Understandable. It's, right. <laughs> it's, it doesn't have the budget it has. It doesn't mm-hmm. have the animators it has now. So, like, the animation style really, really improves with later One Piece. So I'm hoping... This story is supposed to be a lot of the beginning arc, like before they get to like kind of the meat and potatoes of One Piece, which is like the first 200 episodes. But I'm hoping that it's like a launching pad for people to then be interested in like watching One Piece where the animation is good and where they can, you know, they can understand the story from this live action and then hit episode 300 and take it from there. Or they can watch this live action, and if it's successful, the next one will take another 200 episodes, and then, you know, you'll be, like, halfway caught up by watching these, and then you can hop into the anime, you know? All right. 
We got more questions here. I want to chime in first with a comment that Emily made in the chat. She's listening in. And I think this is in response to saying goodbye to some of your characters. I guess Brooks is listening along as well. Hi, Brooks. Love you. But he said in response to saying goodbye to some of his characters that I can be sad because I can't play the characters anymore and happy for the characters in the theater of the mind at the same time. That's a perfect answer, right? It's bittersweet, right? It's unfortunate that we can't play these characters that we've grown to love. But if they go out in a fitting way, then what more could you ask for? That's perfect. I think it does them a disservice to like keep visiting them like over and over. Mm-hmm. You know, their story is told. Yeah. Like, yeah, maybe they show up as a cameo in something, but like it's in my opinion, it wouldn't be cool if we were then like, okay, let's let's do this like level. 20 scenario with these characters like oh let's bring them back for one you know it's kind of disingenuous like they should get to have a life right (laughs) after the adventure yeah that is absolutely true here's a question that i think is mostly in jest but i think we'll actually peel back some of like what we actually did leading up into this final fight so demuth asks is there a specific reason why so much of Corey's maps remain unused and i think this is kind of in reference to like all the gallo spire maps mm-hmm. so you definitely changed the conclusion of this ap yeah you're meant to like kind of sneak through the city and sneak up to gallo spire and go up seven floors and then fight a divian the honest truth is the combats in Gallowspire are absolute trash poorly written the most difficult thing is like a lang spider it's not an interesting dungeon it's just a staircase up six floors i don't know it's nowhere near as interesting as the below ground floors of Gallowspire, right mm-hmm. like it's take this bone stair which is also a trap and a haunt oh who saw that coming and you know on the first floor you fight like a bunch of dread wraiths, which are completely nullified by a uh, death ward. And you fight a Lang spider a little higher up. You're supposed to fight General Seelock uh, at some point in the tower. And I was like, why wouldn't you just include him in the final combat? All this stuff was going to have to be like eight plus more episodes of bullshit that's not important at all and would completely ruin the whole armies thing that I had set up. Mm-hmm. So I replaced them with a dragon fight that was way fucking cooler. All right. I got a couple. But I do apologize. I made you do the maps because I didn't, <laughs> I, you know, you did the maps like back or before we started book five. So I didn't really know what I was doing for the end. All right. I got a couple more final questions and then we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, Griff, I don't know if you've received the final jab. Since no, I, I, think yours him, is, so then, I think yours is good. Great. Well, then that's the one we're going to go with. So I have a question from Eric again. Are there any undead enemies you wish got a bigger feature? So anything that we might have glossed over or missed, or maybe and maybe even something like some of the creatures in the tower that you might have left out? I don't know, dude. Like, we've touched on a lot of undead creatures. I mean, if you mean like a book dedicated to them, no, I think, I think they're pretty well spaced. Like, I like the idea of like a ghost book. I actually played up like the zombie stuff in Adarak probably more than you would in the original adventure, which I felt like gave it like a really good Night of the Living Dead kind of vibe. Maybe like adding like ghasts early on. I know there was like a encounter with ghouls and ghasts or whatever, but I think they're pretty pathfinder. So it'd be cool to kind of like explore them a little bit more and get a little bit more backstory for them. But 
other than that, like, I'm not trying to reinvent Mummy's mask, right? So, like, if you want your mummies, do that, AP. If you want your undead adventure that has mummies, do Mummy's mask. If you want your undead adventure that has, you know, zombies and vampires, do this, AP. It would be a little stepping on toes to go that route. Yeah, I think I agree there. And there was even still, like, mummies in this. <laughs> they were, They existed. They were there. All right. I have one final question here, and I think this is going to be difficult. I don't even know if we're going to come up with an answer on this one. Okay. So this comes from Newt. What was the most pivotal role in the AP? That's really tough, especially because I feel like basically every role is important. I don't know. There's some. Can you get him to clarify like role in terms of or, oh, oh, role R-O-L-L? Yes. I thought yes. you meant R-O-L-E. No, no, no. R-O-L-L. Boy. A couple ones that I can think of that we talked about this in our like post finale dinner one of the huge ones is zombie saw not being able to kill grounded just about to bring that up i rolled like a natural two on that and ground matumbe like i needed like a 16 to hit you or something stupidly low i think at that point at that point matumbe would have permanently died probably like i don't think permanently died and i don't i know this this probably sounds crazy but i don't think i would have brought him back i think even if given the opportunity i think he kind of gets a little bit of closure and it's a difficult sad ending but i liked his story up till that point and i think it makes sense for him to like die fighting the halfway through the ap boss like uh, and i that is, and a, I good, that is a good like, point for a character to go out if you're gonna talk pivotal characters that like you know it's like matumbe never left mm-hmm. you know what i mean and eclipse barely left so you have those two characters in my head that are like this like the the adventure kind of through line the through line kind of depends on them mm-hmm. in a way not to say that they're protected because they weren't but but if you if you take either one of them away that it very really much changes, changes the story the I think that makes our party which was towards the end quite neutral heavily leaning evil like I think it tilts it way more in that area because then your your remaining through line is Eclipse who is going through all sorts of crazy shit and is since book one an evil PC I also on top of that think that very much changes the like Sawyer Anya side plot maybe not their dynamic but like Sawyer gets resurrected and comes back into the campaign and he's gonna come back a very different person having just like slaughtered one of the good guys when well, he's trying to do good or do we even do that do well, we even want to bring him back well i mean that, think like, about think, think about how abaddon would have gone like that would have been before abaddon oh, sure. so the lopper wouldn't have inhabited matumbe loppers in like maybe ikmer or I don't think the lopper had been with anybody long enough besides Matum. It was the obvious choice to me when that happened was that like, he's gonna like, he's going to force you guys to go to Abaddon through a character kind of. And -hmm. it was through you. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I don't, I think you would have lost eclipse too. I think the Abaddon arc wouldn't have happened. I think that's possible. I think that makes sense. So I think that's a huge one. One of my favorites and I don't know that it was like hype. I think it was hyper pivotal for it just being like one of the coolest things I was able to pull off. And one of the more satisfying things was you guys failing the sense motive on the Galbrezu demon 
Oh, sure. That instigated the wish and changed mm-hmm. Freya's whole trajectory. Yeah. Yeah, that's up there. That's top three. Because, like, realistically, even though Freya wasn't a book one character, Freya very much to me felt like a book one character in that, mm-hmm. like, the whole party had to rely on Freya so many times. Mm-hmm. I think Freya just fit really naturally into the party comp both mechanically and just like vibe wise it was like a really good foil to some of the other characters I felt like a grounding presence for the show Mm. I would say so yeah that's up there too I'm sure we're going to come up with some more examples as we think about it but I think those are our best answers for now yeah so I think that's pretty much it nothing else really to plug so we're going to go to the drunken disorderly chat in a moment here after we've gotten an opportunity to use the restroom get more drinks etc to hang out with you all but in the meantime i have one final jab and the jab really isn't for me it's not really for either of you this is coming out of divian from Uh. sir newt final jab so even the world's most powerful lich couldn't beat an old man with a shiny book who's the apex nerd now divian we all know who's got skills and you know what i like that that's a great way to go out so you all survived your will save you made it out of the zone of truth We'll be in the Drunken Discordly chat in a sec, but in the meantime, Griff, do you have anything to say to the people at home? Well, I am a little curious when I'm going to stop doing this, but uh, for now, finish your drinks. We'll see you in two weeks. Later.